0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. We'll start off, um, say a few things about Parshas Vayetze. Um, the, the Parsha begins with, um, with Yaakov Avino, Jacob, our, our holy father, uh, leaving Israel and uh, starting out on the, the, the journey of really building his life and saving his life all at the same time. He's running away from uh, his brother, Asav, who wants to kill him. And um and he starts off on this amazing journey, even though he's described while he's still living in Israel as a someone who dwells in tents, meaning to say that while he was in uh the land of Israel, still at his parents' home, he was constantly learning Torah and, and all the rest. Nonetheless, it says that when he left on this on this twin mission uh to start a family and also to um run away from Asaf, it says that he went to the yeshiva of uh Shem and Ever, who were the uh, children of, of, of Noah, and, um, and that he learned there for, for years and years and years and years. So, so um, you know, in other words, it, the way it's usually said is that when he left Israel, he went and he learned for a long time. But what I'm suggesting is he was already learning for a really long time. So, so, so there was a quality of learning that he did when he left that he didn't have while he was still in Eretz Yisrael. So that in itself is, is, is worthy of trying to um, understand and explain. So one thing that uh, the commentaries say is that he, he didn't sleep for that period of time. What was it, 14 years? Something like this? So that he didn't sleep, or I heard he didn't sleep in a bed, or that he didn't sleep for an entire night, whatever, however we're to understand it. This, in other words, he really didn't break from his learning. Now, I heard Reb Shlomo Karlovak say something that really moved me, really touched me. You know, at this point in his life, um, you, you know, put yourself in, in Yaakov's shoes for a moment. Yaakov is the embodiment of truth. The prophet says, Yaakov, that, 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 that truth is given over to Yaakov. And yet you see that he's just undergone this Harrowing experience of having to to deceive his father, basically, or to dress up like Esav, which is on some level a, a humiliating experience. It, it must have been on some level, on some level, that he had to go through this type of uh, experience. But you know, anyone who says that that Yaakov was involved in a deception, I I think is mistaken, and I think fails to understand w- what went on. First of all, we have to understand that he had acquired the birthright um, officially in a 1,000% kosher manner. He had actually bought it. So, and, and Asaph willingly gave it up. And seemingly, you see, if you have a transaction where you have a, an object which is worth, say, thousands and thousands of dollars, but you're not aware of its value, and I say, oh, you know, that looks like, uh, that's interesting, I, you know, I don't really want it, but, you know, if you want to get rid of it, I'll give you ten bucks for it, what do you say? And the guy goes, well, it's not worth anything anyway, I'll take the ten bucks. And then finds out it's worth thousands and thousands of dollars. There's, there's a question as to whether or not that's a kosher transaction or not. However, it says that Asav understood that he was going to die if he kept this birthright. In other words, he understood that he was not spiritually fit in order to maintain this, and that he, by um, servicing this role of the Kohen as the, as the priest in the family, that, that, that it was going to backfire on him, since he was not spiritually fit for it, and it would culminate in his own death. So, from this teaching, you understand something very important, which is that he fully understood what it meant to have this birthright. And he didn't want it. In fact, it was beneficial for him not to have it. So there you see that this transference of the birthright was 100% kosher on the business level. I'd like to suggest my own explanation right now, which is that you might say to yourself, well, wait a second. Let's say he wanted to get rid of the birthright. How can you get rid of a birthright? In other words, in Judaism, we say if someone converts, God forbid, if a Jew, God forbid, converts to another religion, according to Jewish law, it's a meaningless act. What I mean by that is it's, 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 it's a meaningful act in, in, in that they've really sort of kind, of kind of shot themselves in the foot, spiritually speaking. In other words, they, they have to undo whatever, whatever spiritual damage they've done to their own souls. However, one cannot, according to Jewish law, convert out of Judaism. If you're a Jew, you're a Jew. That's it. You know, that's, that's what it is. So, so we don't recognize conversion. Um, outside of Judaism. Of course, if you're, if you're not Jewish and you want to become Jewish, that's, that's 100% great. Um, but do it. Hurry up. Do it before the Messiah comes because then you're not going to be able to do it. So, then everyone's going to want to become Jewish and it's sort of like store hours are going to be over at that point. So, so get your applications in early. Avoid the rush. <laughs> um, but if someone wants to convert outside of Judaism, they can't do it, because, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, it's a spiritual state, you can't, trans- you can't transfer out of it. Okay, with that in mind then, how then can you sell the birthright? You hear the question? If you're born, if you have, if you're the B'chor, you're the B'chor, how do you get rid of that? We just said it was a kosher transaction, that you, that you can do it. So, so the fact is, is that you can do it. This is a different category. This is a different category. And I'll give you what I think is a proof for this, which is that um, everybody knows that the the, the tribe of Levi um, is are the is is where all the kahanim, you know. I, I really don't. The 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 English translation is a little bit confusing. That means the priestly class. When you think of priests, you think of another religion. So it's a it's a bit of. Um, it's a bit of an odd translation, but they're the ones who administer in the, in the Beis Amigdash, in the Holy Temple. They're sort of the leaders of the, of the, um, of the Holy Service, might, might be a better way of uh, translating it. But anyway, so we know that the whole tribe of Levi are, are these spiritual leaders among the Jewish people, where the Kahanim and the Leviim come from. Okay, great, so that's, that's where we are today. That's all very good, except it wasn't always like that. The eldest of every family had that role. Every single role had a, every single family had a Kohen. Wherever the firstborn male was, that was the Kohen. So when did that switch over? And then you had that, so to speak, more or less kind of shifted onto the tribe of Ruvain, since he was the firstborn of Yaakov, right? All that gets switched over at uh, Harsinai with the sin of the golden calf. All of a sudden, God takes that status and he transfers the status of the firstborn. Onto the tribe of Levi. So from this you see that the status of the firstborn can be transferred. If God desires to transfer that, it can be transferred. And it goes on to the, the tribe of Levi. Okay. So all good. Now, what I'd like to suggest is if you look in the Midrashim, it says that the day that Yaakov Avinu sold or bought rather, or let me rephrase that, the day that Asaf Sold the birthright to Yaakov was the day that Abraham Avinu died, and these lentils, this red stuff that that Asa wanted. You know, my mother showed me something when I was younger. My mother worked for Pfizer; uh, it's a pharmaceutical company for about almost twenty-five years, and she was she was terrific. You know, she um, she. She read medical journals all the time. Her job was to explain the new um, pharmaceuticals to to the salespeople who then went and shopped them to the various doctors. So she would have to understand various illnesses and how this drug worked exactly and explain to the salesmen how to explain it to the physicians. So as a result, my mother was... Almost like a doctor, she she understood that like medicines and illnesses and all the rest, and um, you know, just growing up, that that uh, that that sort of surfaced in all sorts of interesting ways. Like I remember, my mother uh, one time I, I was a certain age and and alligator shirts were all the rage, right? But they were expensive, you know. So I remember sitting in the kitchen one time and saying to my mother. Oh, I want an alligator shirt. And she said, no, I'm going to get you a shirt with a penguin on it because it's higher on the evolutionary ladder. (laughs) (laughs) I knew she wanted to save money. I'm sure she knew she wanted to save money. But the way it was presented was in terms of, you know, zoology. You know, another time I remember from the time I was a, a child, I would come into the kitchen and my mother would say, did you wash your hands? And I would say, yeah, and I would show her the palms of my hands, and she would say, dorsal and palmer, which means that I had to turn over my hands. Now, I still haven't looked this up, but I imagine that one side is called the dorsal, and the other side is called the palmer. But anyway, so so I grew up with all this all this strange stuff. Anyway, there are many more stories, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, anyway, so how did we get on to this? Rich say it again, the red stuff, yeah, so my mother, thank you, my mother was reading a medical journal, and someone had written in a medical journal that Asa was hypoglycemic, and how do we know that he was hypoglycemic? Because he was so hungry that he was willing to trade his birthright for this bowl of beans, right, this bowl of lentils, and that's, that's an argument, so, you know, people come up with all sorts of stuff, so, anyway. But it says, according to the Midrash, that was the day that Abraham died, and this is why they were eating these lentils, which are round, which is sort of the circle of life, I guess. But it also says another interesting detail, which is not such a detail, that Asav had done five capital sins that day, including rape and murder. And that's what he was returning back from. So what I would like to suggest is that at that time, Asav, through his really... The, the horrendous way that he was conducting his life, that at that point, God transferred the birthright from him. At that time, he was shown to be spiritually unworthy of this, and then it was just a question of conducting it, the as we say, like in, in this world, it then trickled down into a business transaction. But that Hashem had already transferred the spiritual status of the Bechor of the firstborn to Yaakov. And we know, by the way, that Yaakov actually was conceived first. This is a an interesting thing. Now, imagine, even though he was the second born, he was conceived first. So how does that work? So the example the rabbis give is, imagine I have a narrow bottle. You can think of a womb, I guess, but just imagine a narrow bottle. And I put in a blue marble, and then a red marble. Okay, so... Even though the blue marble got in first, what comes out first? The red marble, right? Do you understand? The blue marble and then the red marble. But then if you tip it over the other way, the red marble comes out first, even though it was second. So they say that even on a spiritual level, really, Yaakov Avina was conceived first, and actually, that makes perfect sense, since it says that when God went to create the entire world, the first thought that he had in mind was the Jewish person. So in other words, in, in, in the thought of Hashem in creating the entire universe, the first thing that came into God's mind was Israel. And we all know Yaakov in Israel, it's Yaakov's name gets changed to Israel, Yaakov in Israel is the same thing. So there you see it very clearly, maybe that's what the Medrash is Talking about you know maybe on a deeper level that 's what that means actually um, so so all of that's background so now now we have uh, now we have a very interesting situation, which is Yaakov leaving Israel and going to start his family so so we said that while he was while he was in um while he was still with his family before he left, basically he was learning Torah all of the time. And yet the rabbis say that the first thing he did was he went to the yeshiva and, and, and learned and didn't sleep and, and so much attention is paid to that, it's as though that was a novel thing when that was really his whole life. Now I'll tell you this story that I heard from Reb Shlomo, which is so interesting. So this yeshiva was run by the children of uh, Noah. This yeshiva was run by the people who were actually on Noah's Ark. This yeshiva was run by the people who saw the entire world fall apart. And what was happening at this point in Yaakov Avinu's life, his entire world had fallen apart. Right? Remember, as soon as he's running to leave, he gets stopped by Eliphaz, who's the son of Esav, who has explicit instructions to kill Yaakov. And Eliphaz is, is divided. He goes, hey, you know, this is my uncle Yaakov. He knows he's holy. He says, but I have a mitzvah. I have to listen to my father. My, my father told me to kill him. By the way, I heard in the name of Shmuel Levitz, he has a whole interesting explanation of what happens when the light of Torah becomes perverted, so to speak. Meaning to say, Eliphaz understands murdering Yaakov to be under the heading, under the jurisdiction of honoring your parents, which is a mitzvah in the Torah. So this is, you see, and he says, you know, terrible things can come from this when you, when you, misunderstand, it says that the Torah can be a potion of life or a potion of death. And when you take the light of Torah and you filter it through a, a very confused understanding, it actually can become a potion for death. This is why it's so important to, to learn Torah from people who, who understand it clearly. And, you know, on the one hand, we have to understand there are two dimensions to the Torah. We have the, the, what we call the Torah Shabetzav and the Torah Shabalpeh. The, the, the translated as the, the the written Torah and the oral Torah. So, so what that means is basically that learning out of a book only gets you so far. The oral Torah means it 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 it, it magistrates if that's if that's the right word. It, it mandates that you learn in person with someone. And, and, and the downside, the upside, first of all, it's, it's the greatest thing in the world, but let's just understand one, one downside to it. This revolution in Torah literature that's come out is absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's, it's, there's this plague of ignorance that's, 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 that's just uh, enslaved our generation and the previous generation. And now, all this authentic Torah is coming out in English. It's amazing. It's amazing. In other languages, too. It's amazing stuff that was never translated, stuff that you had to be a rabbi to even have access to. Now it's all, you can walk into a bookstore, you can get an amazing education in English from the most holy sources. What's the downside? The downside is that if you're just reading that stuff out of a book, there's a very good chance you're going to misunderstand quite a bit of it. Quite a bit of it. Even as you're understanding what's on the page and, and what's being translated as Kabbalah and Zohar and all sorts of stuff, which is the stuff that would be most easy to misunderstand. You know, remember, traditionally speaking, you had to be 40 years old and married before you could learn any Kabbalah. Okay, so now people have made it a little bit more flexible for various reasons. Um, you know, one of the explanations that I heard, which is from the Baal Shem Tov, something really amazing, is that there's a, uh, a king who has a child, and this child is um, very ill. And is going to die, God forbid. And um, they don't know how to save the child. And all the doctors are giving different medicines and nothing's working. And one doctor comes and he says, there is a medication that can save your child. But it has to be made from the greatest jewel from the king's crown. We have to take it out of the king's crown and we have to pulverize it into powder and then mix it with water and that will save your son. But the king has to be willing to agree to, you know, the... The crown of the king is a, is a very great emblem and you know a a, um, a, a, you know, a solidification of his, his monarchy in the eyes of the people and all the rest. And the king agrees and, they, and they, they grind down this precious gemstone from the king's crown and they give it to the son and it saves the son's life. So they say that this is the dissemination of, of, of Kabbalah to our generation. In other words, it's like the jewel of Hashem. However, because we're in such a spiritually lowly state right now, we need that inside of the inside in order to survive. So, so these are, there are certain parameters in which, in which it is permissible in our generation for people who, in previous generations, would not be allowed to learn these things, can learn these things. However, however, if you're just opening up a book and you don't know anything and you're just reading this stuff, you think you're understanding, but you're not understanding so, so in other words, you need books, but you also need live teachers, and you need live teachers who are qualified. Okay, so now, Eliphaz thinks he has a mitzvah to kill Yaakov Avinu, because it says, honor your parents. Right? Do you hear how twisted that is? Yaakov Avinu, to Eliphaz's great credit, he listens to Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu tells him, in Torah, someone who is absolutely... Poor, I mean, poor on top of poor, is called a dead person. Okay? So, they, he says, take all of my possessions from me. So, he takes all of his possessions from him. He says, you fulfilled your father's word. You've made me dead. Because I'm, like, I've got, I'm halakhically dead at this point. Because you've taken everything from me. So, Faz does his thing, and now Yaakov Avinu is continuing on. So, Yaakov Avinu's world has really fallen apart. Totally. He's been exiled from his home. He's, he's being hunted. He's being hunted by everyone, including his nephew. He has nothing. And now, where does he learn Torah from? From someone who understands very well what it means to be in that situation. He says, your life is falling apart. Your world is falling apart. Hey, guess what? I saw the entire world fall apart. And I'm not talking metaphorically. I saw the entire world washed away. Ah, that's someone who you can learn Torah from, right? You know, Reb Shlomo, one time, was in the hospital. He had a pacemaker. I don't know if everyone knows that. Reb Shlomo had a pacemaker. He had a pacemaker put in, and they went in. You know, that involves a, a heart surgery, right? the uh, doctors or the nurse, whatever it is, came in and saw that he's not in his bed. So, where is he? And they find he's in a different part of the hospital doing Bikr Cholim, visiting people who are sick. He's going from hospital bed to hospital bed, you know, trying to give comfort and and strengthen people who are sick. And the doctor or the nurse, whoever it is, said to him, what are you doing? You know, you've just had a, a major surgery. And you have to recover. When you get better, you can go and you can make the rounds if you want. He said, no, you don't understand. He said, at that point, they're going to look at me as a rabbi coming to visit a sick person. He says, now I can be a sick person visiting another sick person. He goes, oh, it's, it's, they receive the healing on a completely different level. So can you imagine what it was for Yaakov Avinu, whose world is falling apart? To be able to sit with someone who saw the actual world fall apart? Can you imagine what the healing was? Maybe another point to make. Which is that um, the Chachamim say that someone who learns something a hundred times over can't even be compared to someone who learns it a hundred and one times. And there's a lot of literature on that particular point, and gamaches and all, all sorts of things showing how this is the case. Now we know in quantum physics, there is such an idea that at a certain point, the energy level just jumps, just jumps another level. And we've all seen that in various ways in our own life. So it is, apparently the Chachamim isolated it in terms of learning, that, that the 101st time somehow... The understanding that you receive just jumps. If I'll give it to you in, a, in, a, in maybe a way that we can relate to it more in our own lives. Someone who learns for, say, two hours in a row, or one hour in a row, that's far more advantageous than someone who learns 15 minutes, and then later on in the day another 15 minutes, and then later on in the day another 15 minutes. So both people will say, well, I learned one hour, and I learned one hour. But the hour of unbroken concentration yields progressively more insight than that which is broken up. So, perhaps, the amount of time that he put in when he left Israel was that, so to speak, hundred and first time. You know, especially since that was the period where most human beings would have Put aside their learning, maybe for the rest of their lives. You know, you know. I went to yeshiva when I was younger. Now I'm in business, okay. But he he went back to it, and um, and it says that that's really what gave him the power to withstand what Lovin tried to do with him in terms of that spiritually hostile atmosphere that he entered into for the next period of his life, where he met his. Wives and, and, and had his children, had the tribes of Israel, right? Where the Jewish people was born. Um, okay. I want to focus in on the, the Parsha itself. <clears throat> Maybe go a little bit deeper. So, we had these um, paragraph breaks all over the Torah. And um, if you imagine, I'm sure all of you at some point in your life have seen a a Torah scroll, or one raised up, or whatever it is, and you see that there are these white sections in the Torah. I'm not talking about the borders around the text. I'm talking about within the blocks of text themselves, you've got a chunk of white. So what is that chunk of white? What is that exactly? So if you look in Rashi, in the beginning of... um, uh, Sefer VaYikra, the book of Leviticus. It's actually the the second Rashi. Rashi comments on one of these white breaks, and I'm just going to jump into the middle of these of this Rashi, and he says one might be able to think there was. Um okay, I'm sorry. Let's start here. What purpose did the break serve? Right, Rashi is explaining to you what those white breaks are. He says to give Moshe an interval of time for contemplation between one section of the Torah and another and between one topic and another. And he goes on that all the more so that time for contemplation between subjects is necessary for an ordinary person who learns from an ordinary person. In other words, these breaks came down These times for contemplation and absorption came down when God was teaching Moshe. So if if Hashem was telling Moshe, here, take this time to think about it here, and if Moshe, or if Moshe conversely, needed the time, you know, and he's learning from Hashem, how much more so when two human beings or ordinary people are learning from each other? How much more time do we have to take time between subjects or even within subjects to pause and really contemplate what the what the meaning of the uh, of, of the text is, okay, okay, good. so now you want to hear something really far out? this Parsha is the only Parsha in the entire Torah from the beginning of the Parsha to the end of the Parsha that doesn't have any breaks in it at all. no breaks, no breaks, no time for thinking. now, I just want to be super clear because This point, I haven't really heard this point made so often. Usually a similar point is made, but it's a different topic. So let me just tell you what that point is so you're not confusing the two in your mind. Before the last Parsha of Breshis, Vayekhi, there's no separation between one Parsha and the other Parsha. That's the only time that happens between Parshas. Usually the Parshas have a little break to delineate themselves, all right? That's not what this is. This is talking about within one Parsha, there's no breaks. Okay? No breaks within the Parsha itself. It's a really long time to go with no breaks. And it's the only time in the whole Torah that it happens. So now let's spend a little time trying to understand what this what this means, right? So, I've heard some different things, some beautiful things. And I want to suggest one or two of my own. So... so One of the things that we have to understand is on the most basic level, our rabbis teach that what's happening is the whole Jewish people is going into exile right now. That this portion of the Torah. Because Yaakov is leaving Israel. So that's the simplest definition of exile. And we know all the troubles that he's heading into. Okay? Really, he's building his whole life. He's building his whole family and everything like that. And there's no... And there's no, time, uh, there's no time to think. So isn't that interesting? Now that we, we can put two and two together and, 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 and see an interesting definition of what exile means on another level. Yaakov is going down into exile and the account of Yaakov going into exile also has no breaks in it. A break is a time to think. In other words, what's the definition of exile? Exile means that you're conducting your life in such a way that you have no time to think, no time to absorb what's going on in your life. That's exile. That's exile. So, So another example, this famous example, is when Moshe Rabbeinu comes to the Jews to get them out and to liberate them, the very first thing that that Pharaoh does is he doubles their workload, or triples their workload, whatever it was. They had to, before they had to make a certain quota of bricks, but the straw to make the bricks out of was provided for them. Now Pharaoh says, you have to make the same number of bricks and you have to get the straw. So that, that's, that's a lot of work, you know? that to get the straw and make the same amount of bricks all in the same amount of time. So the Ramchal famously says that the way the Yetzirah, the evil inclination in all of our lives works is that when the promise of redemption is coming it gives you more and more work so that you don't have any time to think or to contemplate what's going on, the spiritual opportunity that's at hand. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says that if someone wants to draw close to Hashem, you see, you know, it's so funny, we have such a um, narcissistic, indulgent, self-centered idea of our own relationship with God and our, our, our own spirituality. We think um, God, I want to draw close to you. Now, all of a sudden, all the gates are going to open up and everything is going to become easy in, our, in my life. That's what we think. <laughs> Rabbi Nachman says the opposite. He says, a person says, you want to draw close? In heaven, they say, okay, let's give him a test. <laughs> let's see if he really wants to draw close. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. So, but, but 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 conversely, if you know that, if you know that, that this is the, sort of the spiritual metaphysics of the world, if you know that, then you can expect a test, then when the test comes, you're actually prepared for it, it's like a, a batter at the batting plate, he knows the pitch is going to come, he's anticipating it, he can go, okay, here it comes, and then bam, can hit it out of the park, and that's a positive thing and not only that but but you're happy because it's a spiritual validation from above that that um that you're being taken seriously in heaven okay now this is something this what i just said is something that can be misapplied so so let me go into that because i don't want you to misunderstand this teaching sometimes Sometimes God tells you that this is the wrong path by giving you no success in this particular area, and then you'll go, "Okay, I'm not finding success in this area. God is telling me to switch areas." Okay, so so you have to talk with someone who's a who's a competent person, who's a wise person, and you have to say to them, "You know something, I'm, I'm, I'm getting." I'm getting challenged in this particular area of my life. What do you think? Do you think that this is a sign that I should... That this, that this relationship is not the right relationship? Right? Or am I just receiving a, t- a test? Right? So you have to talk with someone who knows something. Right? Because one can misapply this, this, which is that... Ah, oh, I'm in love with this guy and he won't give me the time of day... What further confirmation from heaven that he's the right person? (laughs) Right? As you can see, when you hear it like that, it sounds ridiculous. But in our own sincere way of trying to work these things through, sometimes we get very confused. So this is why you have to talk to people. You have to talk, especially in this area. Because we can't, we'll, 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 we'll always not be good judges in this. We'll always not be good judges in this. You have to seek someone else's advice when it comes to something like this. When a test is a spiritual validation and just something that you have to go through, and when it's a sign from above that that you should try something else. Okay? Anyway. So, yeah. Okay, now, you said you go to someone and you ask them for validation. Well, you ask them to help to explain what it is Hashem is trying to tell you. Right. Right. And then, different people have different tastes. Right. That's. This is also true. You, you know, we don't. We don't have prophecy today. Before, you could go to a prophet, and a prophet would give you the straight answer. So, so you know, you, you got to pick the smartest people that you know, or the smartest person that you know. See, it says, lecha rav." You have to take upon a a teacher, an authority upon yourself, and that's that's important because. After a while, someone, you have to go to someone who knows you. And, um, you know, there's some people who mean very well, but they exaggerate wildly. And so they'll go to someone who doesn't know them well, and they'll say, this thing is killing me. And you know what? It's not killing them. But what does the other person know? He hears the word killing. He goes, ay, ay, it's killing you? Okay, so some stop doing it. Whereas, whereas what the person might actually be saying to someone who actually knows the way that person speaks is, you know what, I'm pretty frustrated. <laughs> All right, if you're only frustrated, then stick with it. <laughs> if it's killing you, hey, then, then forget about it. So, so, so a, 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 a Rav, someone who, who knows you well, who you can develop a relationship with, over a period of time, understands the contours of your life, understands your emotional swings and all these things, and then can better determine these things. And, um what about the opposite? You're talking about killing, but what if it's something that I think is really good, but some people that know me well don't think it's so good, but then they're right. from a different generation, Right. they just don't understand these things. Right. The people in my right. own generation love it. Right. Okay, so, so that's a very good point, too. That's, that's a good point, too. So, so, so again, you see, you know, there's... You, you can come up with your own English words to make the distinction that I'm going to make, but I'm going to choose these two words. You can come up with your own words, but listen to the concept behind the words. There's a big distinction between intellect and wisdom. Okay? The distinction that I want to make is someone who's got a high IQ, someone who's an intellectual, someone who's smart, and someone who has wisdom means that they're not just smart, but they've lived through life and they have experience. You see, because what young people don't understand I feel strange using that phrase since I'm not I'm not so old, but you know but um let's say teenagers, okay? <laughs> And since we're all emotionally arrested these days, we we, we maintain our teenage state very late into life, unfortunately. Ah, all of, you know, an aspect of the consumeristic society that we're living in, I'm just setting this up so I can use a big word, is that it infantilizes us. (laughs) Which means it keeps us in the state of emotional infants. They want to sell us products. So they just keep on telling us that, you know, ah, oh, this will address this, this will address this, you don't have to address this problem in your life, and you don't have to address that problem in your life, because we're just going to keep on giving you everything so that you don't have to grow. So we remain emotionally teenagers until late in life. I'll tell you something else. One of the real problems with drug abuse is that it, 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 suspends, uh, it keeps us children late into life. What I mean by that is that is that it, when someone begins taking drugs, and I'm talking about smoking pot, or, or, or drinking, or whatever it is, whatever their uh, escape of choices, and their other forms of addiction, which, which would also fall into this category that I'm talking about right now, is that when someone reaches an emotionally uncomfortable state, they don't allow themselves to work through that state, and they run away from it by by taking drugs or going into some sort of escapist mode. Now, let's think this through for a moment. After a person does that over a period of years, they become completely unfit. Like, Do you you remember that um, Born Free? Remember Born Free? They take this animal that really is supposed to live in the wild, and they domesticate it, and then they put it out in the wild. And I don't know the end of that story, but usually the end of that story is that animal gets killed and eaten by the other animals in the forest because they don't know how to live in the forest. So what happens is, is that when we remove ourselves from experiencing and working with emotional discomfort, then we stay a child, emotionally speaking, late into our life. So a person can be 30 years old, but if they've never had to deal with a bad mood, or whatever it is, they may as well be 12. Emotionally speaking, they're still 12 or 13. So, so the thing is, is, that, is, that, is that teenagers, young people, they don't understand the value and the, uh, the, the, the necessity of life experience as a teacher. They think because they're smart enough to, at their level, think through a situation that they have the, the the resources to evaluate what to do in a given situation, but they don't because they haven't lived through life. so so older people who have lived through life, they're not just smart, but they know kind of more or less how the world works, and they can give you an essential dimension of information that you can't get from someone who's your peer. You just can't get it. That's why in every single culture around the world, for all time since the beginning of time, elders of the culture have been prized. Why? Why don't they say, hey, look, he's the youngest and the strongest. He's the guy we want to be with. We don't want to be with this old guy. What are we going to the old guy for advice for? We want to be with the strong, buff guy. Right? Let's ask him for advice. No one does that. No one historically has ever done that. Because every culture has figured out at one point or another that, that life experience is essential to good thinking, to clear thinking. So, go ahead. And just a quick yeah. <clears throat> This perennial adolescence also is, is, a, is a negative because there's no sense of consequences. A person who's lived a long time sees how a, a certain choice or a certain action could lead... To consequences, right? A young person rarely even thinks about consequences. Right. What is this going to lead to? What is going to be the impact? They're right. just thinking about what's right in front of them. Right. And wisdom involves thinking of consequences of how it's going to play out in a larger scenario. Right. And the thing is, is that if you imagine like the dominoes falling, you know, you tip one domino and then the other dominoes behind it fall. You know, sometimes imagine you're looking at a domino like straight on. You don't see that there are dominoes behind it right but an older person has lived enough that he's got you know he doesn't just see it straight on he sees it from the side he sees the dominoes that you don't see so so he's saying there are consequences to that action and you say i'm looking at the same domino you're looking at and i don't see any consequences so you think well we're from different generations you don't understand i understand he understands <laughs> He understands. So, does that mean that you can also go to an older person who will give you bad advice? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not ruling that out. That can also happen. So, in other words, you have to. You have to pick. You have to pick the right person. So, who's the right person? Well, you know, trial and error. You know, yeah, it's hard to find. You know, I, one of the best things I ever heard was, "Common sense isn't common." If you find someone in life who genuinely has common sense, stay in that person's world, you know, even if you have to sit in the mezzanine seat, right? Stay in that person's world, because common sense is not common. Um, I, I, I love my father forever, and my mother too. He had common sense. He absolutely had common sense. He did. He just he did, and I love him forever for, for that um so anyway uh so part of the essence of being in exile is that there are no breaks in this parsha. there's no time to think person has to think you know i'll put it in other words have you ever heard this term being reactive sometimes we are so reactive this person why did you say that because he said this Why'd you do that? Because he did that. All right, how about he did that? And you think about it. <laughs> think about it. Why did he do it? What did he mean? Ask him what he means. You don't have to be a mind reader. You know something? You did something, and it really messed me up. And why'd you do that? Can you? And then they'll say to you, Oh, I'm so sorry. You know what? I got a phone call two minutes before I saw you. My head was spinning. I don't even... Did I actually even say I don't even remember saying that to you. I'm so sorry. Did I give you that look? You know, I wasn't even looking at you. I was looking at the person behind you. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad I asked. So many of these things are misunderstandings, you know. You know, if you're in a meaningful relationship, you have to give the person the benefit of the doubt. If you've already determined that this person is a good person, all right, then you can't change your... This is not a logical way to live your life. To then decide the next moment, he must be a horrible person because he did this. If you've already decided that the person is a good person, and you had some reason for deciding that, some good reason, and the person does something that doesn't make any sense to you, ask them. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says that when you give someone the benefit of the doubt, you bring peace into the world. It's a huge thing. You bring peace into the world. Um, Okay, so, did you want to say something? I remember having a Torah class with the rabbi, and he said with me, judge favorably. Right, this is, it's very... I like your common sense, is not common, that's a keeper. Yeah. (laughs) I like that, judge favorably, which you were just saying. And you know, by the way... You have to because otherwise, you know, you're living your life on a on a tightrope. Otherwise, where one breeze swings you off this way or that way, and it's not a way to go through life. You got to be on what they say, terra firma. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but at least at least you can avoid some of the demons in your own head. You know, of jumping to false conclusions. Okay, now. And, and by the way, it won't always be a misunderstanding. Sometimes a person will do something that was actually selfish. And then you say, Hey, can you please not do that next time? Can you try not to do that next time? The person will go, okay, you know. Hopefully they'll say okay. You know? you say it in a nice way? Okay, so remember we're dealing with these this lack of this lack of time to think in the parsha. So I want to throw in one more comment. Um, which is that uh, kind of a, maybe a bit of a cutting remark. But maybe on another level, the Torah is saying like this. You know what? Yaakov Avinu is going through all sorts of trouble in his life. What do you need to break in the Parsha for? What do you need time to absorb that for? That's life. What do you have to think about? That's, That's life. There's nothing surprising about that. Well, you have to stop and think about This one wants to cheat him, and that one. Those two are fighting, and this one wants to kill him. That's life. Um, your books yeah. are all well taken. This just holds together beautifully. But in between the lines, there were those 14 years in Yeshiva Shem and So there was tremendous time for reflection in between at least some of those lines, huh? Well, the 14 years is all preparation for this. In other words, all of that that happened before this Parsha starts. So that little white space between the two Parshas, between the beginning of this Parsha, which has no white spaces in it, and the previous white Parsha, and the previous Parsha, that little space that does exist, that, so to speak, is where he's going to the yeshiva that isn't mentioned. So, that's we talked about that a, a different year. That's a, another thought that I wanted to suggest, which is that, isn't it interesting that that period that isn't mentioned happens before the Parsha starts? In other words, the white space is where that dimension, which isn't spoken about, is spoken about, if you will. Um, and it should give us another perspective on Torah learning. That Torah learning is the time when we can look at a, at a larger perspective on our life and on what's going on. Right. The learning of Torah is exactly giving us wisdom. Okay. So, it does. okay. So beautiful. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's the next point I want to make. And Rabbi Smiles said this, and he's explaining something that um, might be confusing otherwise which is that the, believe it or not, spiritually speaking, a base medrash has the status of Eretz Yisrael, of the land of Israel. And you know, you see this actually, interestingly, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the modern day world, where if the embassy of a country actually legally has the laws and the status of that country, even though you're in a different country. Right? So if you run to the embassy, the United States embassy in another country, it's like, Legally speaking, you're in the United States, even though you may be thousands of miles away from the United States. So, we, we've been saying this for thousands of years, that, that the base medrash, the house of Torah study, has the status of the land of Israel. So, so let's understand this now in the context that we were just speaking about. Why? Because, because we said that Galus, exile, is when you leave the land of Israel. And Galus is that period in your life where you're not given any time to think or any time to absorb what's going on. But if you can go to the house of study, then you're able to get back to Israel. Which means you're able to get back to a place where you can think and you can absorb what's going on in your life. So it all kind of correlates and comes together. Um... Let me just mention that the Sfas Emes says something. It's a totally different point, but it's on this subject, which is that Rivka, um, our holy mother Rebecca, says to, to 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 Yaakov that you you'll go away for a short period of time. He goes away for decades. So how is it that he went away for a short period of time? So the Sfas Emes explains that because there are no breaks in the parsha, right, that it was. That 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 he never separated his das, he never separated his thoughts from the land of Israel. So that's why it was like a short period of time, because on a mind level he was always in Israel and he was always with his parents and he was always at home. So even though it, the distance was great and the time span was great, because he never broke his concentration or his mental connection, so he was always he was always there. So. Anyway, let's, um, let's just wrap it up. Um, we have to give ourselves time to think. We have to give ourselves time to think. And this is why the, um, you know, Rebbe Nachman was so big on his and and taking time every single day to talk to God and to try to really absorb, to absorb what's going on. And for us to try not to be reactive but proactive meaning to say make a plan and you know understand that sometimes the greatest validation of your plan is that you'll you'll get challenged within it right find good people to discuss that with like when when that's really a good sign and when maybe it's it's a sign to try something else and um and 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 let's move forward. Um, I I want to just end with 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 a story. It's one of my 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 favorite favorite stories. And uh, the Torah Treasury, the art scroll book, which I highly recommend, um, by Rabbi uh, Moshe Lieber, uh, brings it down. We were talking a little bit about it in Shalashutis yesterday, but but there's actually one more aspect to it that that. Uh, the original Rebbe, I'll tell you the story in a moment, but the original Rebbe was, was explaining a pasuk. Actually, we didn't mention this yesterday. He was explaining a Pusuk in the Torah. It says, um, Hashem promises uh, Yaakov, I will not forsake you until I have done what I have spoken about you. I will not forsake you until I have done what I have spoken about. So what does that mean? Like, so, so, the following story is given. It says here that Rabbi Isser Zalman Meltzer, that this was one of his favorite stories. So, a Hasid was going to see the, uh, the Rijna Rebbe, one of the great Hasidic masters. And, um, the, the young son, uh, David Moshe, of the original Rebbe, who was later to become the short cover Rebbe, um, he, he turns to the Hasid, who looks like he's like really like stressed out, he looks like he's consumed with worry, and he says that what what are you going to ask my father about? And it says here with a bittersweet smile, the the, the Jew he, he caressed the boy's face and he said, I need your father I need your fathers to bless me, that I should be uh, saved from all the troubles that are going on right now, all the tsuras, right? So it says suddenly the door opened to the to the original Rebbe's study. And the the Jew who has all the troubles walks in. And sometime later he walks out. And the boy says, what did did my father say? And he said, your father told me Hashem will help. And the boy says back to him, "Um, what are you going to do until Hashem helps? So the man is like frozen. He says, go in and ask my father. So he goes back in to the rebbe, and he comes back out and the Hasid is smiling and he said, what do, my, what do my father say? And he said, his father, the original rebbe, his father said, until Hashem helps, Hashem will help. Right? So, I want to say that this is all of life. Hashem will help, and until Hashem helps, he'll help. And with this in mind now, let's return back to the Pasuk, you'll see how Deep in understanding of this passage It is, Hashem says to Yaakov, "I will not forsake you until I have done what I have spoken about you." Meaning, until I will help you, I will not forsake you. You know, I once heard from Rabbi Green. I think this was in the name of the Sanzarevi. He said that one of the Hasidim of the Sanzarevi asked him, "Um, when you're on your way to pray?" Like when you're on your way to shul, right? What do you do when you're on your way to pray? And he says, I pray. (laughs) Okay. Have a great week.